When Ramon Sabat died, none of the newspapers wrote an obituary about his life. If they had, they would have told the story of a boy born to a poor Cuban family and how Ramon Sabat, against all odds, learned the record business in the United States and returned to Cuba with enough equipment to record and manufacture records. When he returned, he founded a record label named Panart, which became Cuba's largest independent record label. Panart is responsible for popularizing Cuban music all over the world, especially the cha-cha-cha. It launched the careers of famous Cuban singers like Olga Guillot and Celia Cruz and recorded Nat King Cole's first Spanish album. When Panart Records was at the height of its success, it was taken away from Ramon Sabat by the new Cuban government headed by Fidel Castro. Ramon, his wife Julia, and their two daughters became exiles living in the United States. But in the 18 years Panart was making records in Cuba, it was, in many ways, the cornerstone of what some historians call the golden age of Cuban music. Hi, I'm Matthew Billy, and this is Between the Liner Notes, a podcast about music, why it is the way it is, and how it got to be that way. Happy New Year, and welcome to the first episode of 2016. First, I would like to thank The Timbre, the website and newsletter that reviews podcasts. The Timbre recently made a list of the top 50 episodes of 2015 for The Atlantic, and one of our episodes was number 20. If you want to check them out, you can visit thetambre.com. Timbre is spelled T-I-M-B-R-E. Also, I'm excited to say that this episode has a special guest producer and music supervisor, Judy Cantor-Navas, the music journalist and expert in Latin American music. I recently stumbled upon an article Judy wrote about Pan Art Records in 1996. That article inspired this episode, so I was honored when Judy agreed to help me with it. Ramon Sabat was a slender man with a fair complexion. He had black hair and a bushy mustache that he always kept well-groomed. Frequently, he donned a tuxedo and tortoise-shell-rimmed glasses. In his mouth was an ever-present cigarette that was occasionally substituted with an H. Upman cigar. When Ramon was contemplating something, his mind would drift away and he would sit motionless with the cigarette in his mouth, not noticing the ash falling onto his shirt, burning tiny holes in the cloth. Those small burn marks became one of his calling cards. But Ramon didn't always wear tuxedos and smoke H. Upman cigars. He was born in 1902 to a mother and father who had been left impoverished by the Cuban War of Independence with Spain. His childhood was poor. However, his father was the town's teacher. And in Cuba, the town teacher was the ultimate person in the town. That's Julie Sabat Alvarez, the daughter of Ramon Sabat. Ramon lived with his mother and father in a small town where his father's school was located. As he got older, he moved in with his aunt in a nearby city. He had an aunt in Cienfuegos. Cienfuegos is a pretty large city in one of the provinces, and uh, she brought him to Cienfuegos. He went to a Catholic school, and he studied music. While living in Cienfuegos, Ramon began taking music lessons and learned to play the flute, clarinet, and piano. To pay for his lessons, he took on many jobs, including running the projector at a theater showing silent films, clerking at a law office, and, my favorite, filling in for the station master at a railroad station. The station master preferred to be sitting at a bar rather than at his desk, so he paid Ramon to do his job for him. That is, until Ramon accidentally derailed a freight train loaded with sugarcane and was fired. It is unknown what happened to the station master. When Ramon reached his middle teenage years, he decided that he wanted to explore the world beyond the borders of San Fuegos. 
He talked with his aunt about the possibility of traveling to the United States, or El Norte, as Ramon called it. And then apparently either she or he or they both decided that he wanted to come to the United States to study. Ramon Sabat left Cienfuegos with $50 in his pocket and took a ferry 90 miles north to Key West, Florida. From there, he took a train to New York and found himself for the first time alone, without a family and having to provide for himself. He said his very first job in the United States was cleaning carpeting at the Commodore Hotel, which I believe doesn't exist anymore. The Commodore Hotel was located next to New York City's Grand Central Station and stood where a Grand Hyatt Hotel stands today. Ramon Sabat was hired by the Commodore Hotel to push this new invention called the vacuum cleaner up and down its endless hallways. At night, after finishing his day of vacuuming, he attended a high school and earned his diploma. By the time Ramon had completed high school, World War I was concluding and the United States military was looking for people to enlist in their small standing army in Europe to oversee the transition to peacetime. Ramon wanted some relief from vacuuming carpets and decided to sign up. There was a problem, though. Ramon was Cuban and did not have American citizenship. The story is they asked him, where are you from? And he said, from Cuba. And the person answered, oh, from Puerto Rico. Okay, I'll sign you up. Puerto Rican citizens have had United States citizenship since Puerto Rico became a United States Commonwealth at the end of the Spanish-American War. By lying about which island in the Caribbean Ramon was from, the army recruiter was able to bypass the red tape and enlist Ramon in the army. After finishing his training, the day finally came for Ramon to board a boat and sail to Europe. But while he was online to board the vessel, something strange happened. My father was a very funny person because his stories, you could tell that part of it were true, but part of it were enhanced, okay? So he says he was online to get on the boat to go to Europe, and he was pulled, physically pulled from the line to get into the army band because he, he was a musician. And so, Ramon Sabat never made it overseas. Instead, he was assigned to the general staff band for the Woodrow Wilson White House and was appointed band librarian. This position gave him some control over what music was performed at important government events. In some ways, Ramon was like the president's DJ. The most high-profile event Ramon performed at with the band was the burial of the first unknown soldier at Arlington Cemetery on November 11, 1921. When the time came for Ramon Sabat to re-enlist in the army, he declined and decided instead to finally find a way to sail around the world. After the war, I believed he was in the Merchant Marine. He lived one year in Japan. I guess he went to Japan with a Merchant Marine and decided to stay for a year. Same thing with Argentina. After leaving Argentina, Ramon moved back to New York City. He used the money that he saved working in the Merchant Marines to attend New York University. In 1928, just before the Great Depression began, he graduated from NYU with a degree in electrical engineering. His degree allowed him to get a job as an audio engineer working for a prominent record label. That label was RCA Victor, who many know from their logo titled His Master's Voice, where Nipper the dog listens intently to the sounds coming from the bell of a gramophone. The experience at RCA Victor opened the door to many new opportunities in the music industry, including one that would prove to be transformative. In 1933, after drinking alcohol became legal again in the United States, Ramon Sabat was made the manager of a nightclub in Harlem, New York. While managing the club, a couple of people who had an idea for a new record label approached Ramon about being a partner in the new venture. 
The record label was named Musicraft, and they believed that there was a market for selling classical music at prices far cheaper than what the larger labels were selling them for. They could afford to sell their records at those cheaper prices because they used less famous orchestras and emerging talent to perform on the recordings, both of whom could be hired for cheap. As Musicraft evolved, the music they released went well beyond the classical genre. They released the first ever original Broadway cast album and worked with the then unknown talents such as Dizzy Gillespie, Artie Shaw, Mel Torme, Sarah Vaughan, and Leonard Bernstein. Ramon's role was to produce and record those records, and he traveled all over the United States and sometimes to other countries to do it. The work was rewarding, and for the first time in his life, Ramon Sabat had some extra money and enough free time to enjoy it. He began attending social events and parties. At one such party, he met a woman named Julia Riera. I think it was at a party, and I think it was through a mutual friend. General Patton's aide-de-camp was Puerto Rican, and he was a very good friend of my father and apparently knew my mother through the Puerto Rican-Cuban circle. And I think it was at a party or somewhere where he introduced him. At a cocktail party in the spring of 1941, General Patton's aide introduced Ramon Sabat and Julia Riera to each other because they were the only people who could speak Spanish at the party. Julia recalls that their shared Cuban heritage was enough to initiate a long conversation. This long conversation was the beginning of a whirlwind romance. Julia Riera was born in the United States to a Cuban mother and Puerto Rican father. At the time she met Ramon, she was living in Port Washington, New York, a short train ride away from her job in Manhattan, where she worked as a researcher in the Foreign Affairs Department at Time Magazine. Julia's job at Time Magazine most likely made her first conversation with Ramon very easy. Ramon was very familiar with the publication and often wrote to Time Magazine critiquing their coverage of the Spanish Civil War. Julia describes their courtship almost like an old black-and-white movie. They danced at the famous Rainbow Room and Havana Madrid nightclub, attended performances at Carnegie Hall and went to the movie theater to watch newly released films like The Maltese Falcon and Citizen Kane. After their dates were over, Ramon would insist on accompanying Julia on her drive back to her home on Long Island. This was kind of a bad idea because of the trains Ramon had to take back to New York City, they didn't run after midnight. So, Julia would have to drive him back. Clearly, this was less about Julia's safety and just an excuse to spend more time with her. Eventually, Julia began inviting Ramon to sleep over in their guest room. Of course, those sleepovers were well chaperoned by Julia's aunt and her two sisters. By summer, Ramon was spending the whole weekend with Julia on Long Island, frequently entertaining the whole family by playing piano. Ramon and his partners at Musicraft owned a sailboat that they docked close to Julia's home on Long Island. One day that summer, Julia, Ramon, and the two Musicraft partners took the sailboat out on the Long Island Sound. While they were out, an unpredicted hurricane hit and disrupted their plans. They dropped anchor close to an island in the sound and were weathering the storm okay until another, larger boat appeared from the fog. This boat was a huge motorboat that seemed to be out of control. The captain was panicking and not steering correctly. He unknowingly guided his motorboat right over Ramon and Julia and the two Musicraft partners' anchor line, cutting it and sending them adrift into the Long Island Sound. Ramon remained calm and navigated the ship as best he could. After hours of drifting in the storm, the rain stopped and a United States Coast Guard boat finally spotted them. When the Coast Guard boat was close enough, Ramon and the captain shouted a conversation to each other, planning the rescue operation. The Coast Guard dropped them on a beach far away from Julia's home. 
Still soaked from the storm and lacking transportation, the four maroon sailors found a hotel that had been boarded up for the season and broke in. They spent that night sleeping on bare mattresses. The next day, they made their way back to Julia's house. The boat turned up on a beach somewhere, not too badly damaged. With a little repair work and a night in a proper bed, everything was going to be okay. Amazingly, Julia remembers these life-threatening events quite fondly. It's moments like these when a person's life is on the line where you see who they truly are. Julia saw Ramon remain calm and collected and take charge of the situation as best he could in a freak hurricane. He kept everyone safe and unharmed. This was the moment where she decided that she wanted to spend the rest of her life with Ramon. All he had to do was ask. Later that summer, Julia went with her sister to a lumber camp a few hours north of New York City. Lumber camps are temporary homes of lumberjacks working on the same project. Julia's sister was visiting her fiancé, who was a medic at the camp. After they arrived, Julia was told that someone had sent a telegraph to her through Western Union. To hear the message, she had to go to the camp's general store, which was loud and crowded with rowdy, beer-guzzling lumberjacks. At the general store, the telegraph operator relayed the message in his dry, monotoned voice. It was from Ramon. He asked Julia for her hand in marriage. She was stunned and stood there silently for a while. Finally, the telegraph operator said that he needed her response because the reply telegraph was prepaid. Julia replied, what do you think, and stormed out. By the time Julia had returned from the lumber camp, Ramon finally learned that the way you propose is kind of important. So he tried again, this time in person and on bended knee. This time, Julia gave him the response he was hoping for. They were married on Thanksgiving Day of that same year. On December 7th, less than two weeks after Ramon and Julia were married, they were attending a concert at Carnegie Hall. The performance was interrupted with an announcement that the Japanese military had bombed Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. In response to this scary news, the entire audience began to sing the country's national anthem. The New York Philharmonic Orchestra joined in and accompanied the audience. Not long after the bombing, the United States entered World War II. The war hindered Musicraft's ability to record and release records. Many of their younger employees were drafted into service. Back then, records were made with a material from India called shellac. The war made shellac hard to import, and the United States government decided that the shellac that could be imported should be used for the war effort. So, with their staff depleted and supply of shellac dwindling, the partners who founded Musicraft decided to disband the company. They divided up the company's assets amongst themselves. For Ramon's share, he received the audio gear and the manufacturing equipment in the company's record factory. And then, it was time to decide what to do next. He bought the little equipment that had been bought for the factory and decided to move to Cuba. While recording an album for Musicraft, Ramon had received an offer from some investors to start a record label in Cuba. Like most new businesses, it was a risky bet, but now, with his current company disbanding, it was the perfect time to take the investors up on their offer. After Ramon and Julia finished their honeymoon in Mexico, Ramon went to work disassembling Musicraft's equipment and preparing it for his trip to Havana, Cuba. In September of 1942, Ramon shipped Musicraft's equipment to Miami, Florida. He and Julia followed in their Pontiac sedan, making the 19-hour drive from New York to Miami. From there, the equipment would have to travel the rest of the way to Havana by boat. Due to the war, options were limited, but Ramon managed to hire a ship, 
albeit a small and rickety one. The equipment was too big to travel in the ship's cargo hold and had to make the trip strapped to the open deck of the vessel, leaving it one storm or one large wave away from disaster. Fortunately, the equipment arrived in Cuba in one piece. Ramon and Julia began to build a life for themselves in the middle of the fabled Havana music scene that thrived in pre-revolution Cuba. Well, in the 40s and 50s, you know, I think Havana was kind of like the way that people imagine it when you think Havana, because it was when everything was really swinging. That's Judy Cantor Navas, the music journalist that I introduced in the beginning who co-produced this episode. There were so many musicians going back and forth, people coming down every weekend, Nat King Cole, and all the big bands that were coming down every weekend, and also a lot of people were flying down every weekend just to go to the clubs, to go to Tropicana, and the big hotels that they had there. Ramon and Julia fit nicely into Havana culture. Their plan was to buy a plot of land and build a house for themselves. Ramon would design it himself, and it was going to include everything that they had dreamed about together back in New York. They did look at properties, but they didn't follow through with the house. Ramon and Julia agreed that for now, their money should be reinvested in the record label and recording great musicians. In Havana, Ramon never had to look too far to find great musicians, but he needed a place to record them. At the start of the next year, 1943, Ramon found a location for his recording studio. It was an old colonial house located at the heart of Havana. The address was San Miguel Cuatrocientos Diez. The high ceilings had good acoustics and there was enough space for the record presses. After Ramon built the recording studio, he installed the audio gear in the control room and finally Musicraft's old manufacturing equipment in another part of the building. In April of 1943, Ramon incorporated the Cuban Plastics and Record Corporation, the parent company of his new record label named Panart, which is short for Pan American Art. The company was open for business, but as Ramon soon found out, building the recording studio was the easiest part of getting Panart off the ground. At that time, the Cuban music market was controlled by American record labels. The most powerful label was one of Ramon's former employers. Once again, here's Ramon and Julia's oldest daughter, Julie Sabat Alvarez. There was a lot of competition. RCA Victor totally controlled that market. Wouldn't give him a chance to, to break into the market. RCA Victor had power similar to a monopoly, and they used that power to choke their competition. They sent out a message to all the record stores in Cuba demanding that they refuse to sell Panart's records. Sales of RCA records was a huge chunk of a record store's business. The record stores knew which side of the bread the butter was on, so they consented to RCA Victor's demands. In order for Panart to sell their records, they would have to circumvent the traditional retail outlets. So he took a concept from the United States. He talked to the stores at department stores, which were department stores. Sears was there, uh, and there were two or three other ones, pretty large, which were uh, Cuban. And music at the stores wasn't heard of at that time in Cuba. And he said, look, I'll pay you for the space for the records, but play the records throughout the store. The first department store Ramon tried this idea in was Sears. Panart paid for a small space on the second floor next to the exit escalator. Escalators were a new invention at the time and turned out to be a big attraction. And so, from that small retail space, Ramon played his albums for the people riding the escalator. They loved it and began buying Panart records. So the stores realized that their sales increased. And, and then, you know, he started expanding into several stores, and that's how he got further out into the market. 
Ramon Sabat had figured out a way to get Panart's records into people's hands, but now he needed to make sure that the records he recorded had the best songs, songs people wanted to hear. Getting the best songs means working with the top songwriters in Cuba. Not surprisingly, RCA Victor, through an affiliated music publishing company, had a stranglehold on the songwriting market as well. They had contracts with all the best songwriters and didn't allow them to work with Panart. Like with the retail stores, Ramon came up with a simple strategy to bypass RCA Victor. Here is my co-producer, Judy Cantor-Navas, once again. He started paying them better. That's how he got a lot of the artists and a lot of the songwriters. He said, I'm going to like double what they're giving you. Paying songwriters double what they made with RCA Victor worked. All the best Cuban songwriters flocked to pan art. Recording better songs led to increased album sales, so the extra money paid to the songwriters was a good investment. But... Even with the best songwriters and the department stores in Panart's Corner, there was one more obstacle that they still had to overcome. Much of the Cuban population loved Panart recordings, but they didn't buy the records. There was no point in buying the records because they didn't own anything to play them on. The market was not very developed in Cuba among the Cuban public at that time because they didn't have record players. So being an engineer, I think he just loved to tinker with things and invent things, and so he actually started to manufacture their own portable record players. Somehow he figured out how to manufacture a very cheap record player so that anybody could get one. Ramon sold the cheap record players at cost. Cubans, who had never owned a record player before, bought one and soon became frequent Panart customers. Ramon's invention expanded the Cuban music market and Panart Records was becoming profitable. But even with Panart's newfound profitability, Ramon and Julia continued to postpone building their dream home. All the money Panart made was reinvested in the company, better equipment, larger manufacturing capacity, stronger distribution. Ramon earned his success by working long hours, but as the business grew, the work became too much for one person. Ramon needed help, so he made a strategic personnel acquisition and hired someone he could count on to manage the details of the operation, such as royalty payments, accounting, order fulfillment, and shipping. That person was his wife, Julia, who proved to be an excellent operations manager and the perfect complement to her husband. Here's their daughter, Julie, again. To me, it was a perfect partnership. He was the artist. He was up in the clouds always, and she was the doer. She got it done. She was a businesswoman, the operations, the processes. She got it done. Ramon and Julia worked hard to build Panart, but they still found time to enjoy the Havana nightlife and do what they had always done together, watch musicians perform live. So here was a guy who was really down in the trenches, and he was designing the studio. He was making the record players. He was kind of hustling and doing whatever he needed to do. But then he was also this very cultured man. And he loved to go home and change into his tuxedo and go out at night. And he and Julia would go out and hit all the clubs and just to see who all the new musicians were. And also just be in that kind of high society world that was in Havana at the time. While hanging out in the Havana nightclubs, Ramon noticed that when the performances were over, the musicians didn't usually go home right away. There were so many musicians who were playing in the clubs every night, but then after the clubs, 
they would get together and just jab and these things could go on until very late in the night. And so Ramon had the idea, you know, why don't we record this in order to get the musicians to come? We had to guarantee we're going to have a lot of rum, a lot of drinks for you guys. Come on over to the Pan Art Studio when you finish work. Word got around. Those recordings were released on an album called The Cuban Jam Sessions. The Cuban Jam Sessions were so popular that more and more musicians began showing up for future jam sessions. Some anonymously because they were breaking their contract with their record label. In total, five volumes of Cuban Jam Sessions were released, all of which many critics say are Panart's finest recordings and capture the zeitgeist of the golden age of Cuban music. Ramon was willing to give musicians anything they needed to perform. For the jam sessions, all they needed was rum and a relaxed atmosphere. But sometimes, the musicians required a little more than that. Like when Ramon recorded a Cuban rumba. So he wanted to get really authentic rumba. And this is the kind of music that is played at uh, we call the Santeria ceremonies, the Afro-Cuban religious ceremonies. So they went and they got musicians who actually play at these rituals. First, somebody had to come in, like a priest, a Santeria priest had to come in and bless the studio. And this involves like pouring rum all over the floor. And then they just brought all the, the musicians in and they were kind of just assuring them, you, you just do your thing and we're not going to interfere with whatever kind of an atmosphere you need to have in here. And this was really the first in-studio recording of Afro-Cuban religious music. The album that resulted from these recording sessions is called Santero and the legendary Cuban vocalist Celia Cruz sang on many of the tracks. Actually, it was one of her very first recordings. She's actually the singer performing on the track you're hearing right now. By the late 1940s, Panart began looking at music markets beyond Cuba. Ramon and Julia realized that Cuba's population at the time was under 6 million. All of Cuba contained fewer people than the city of New York. If they wanted to sell more records, they needed to reach a larger chunk of the world's population. So, they made agreements with record labels in other countries to distribute Panart's records all over Latin America, Europe, and the United States. These distribution deals spread Cuban music all over the world and set the stage for a new dance craze that emerged from Cuba in the next decade. In 1951, Panart recorded Enrique Horan's La Inganadora, the first recording of an innovative new rhythm called the cha-cha-cha. This recording was massively successful all over the world. The cha-cha-cha craze had begun and musicians jumped on the bandwagon and recorded cha-cha-cha records of their own. Because of Enrique Horin's recordings and other cha-cha-cha albums, Panart became known around the world as the Cuban cha-cha-cha label. Panart's distribution deals didn't just bring Panart's recordings to other countries. The deals worked in both directions. 
record labels in other countries asked Panart to distribute their records in Cuba as well. They had contracts with American labels like Decca, which allowed Panart to distribute Bing Crosby records. Later, Panart signed a deal with Capitol Records, who had the legendary jazz crooner Nat King Cole on their roster. Ramon wanted to do more than simply sell Nat King Cole records. He wanted to record Cole. Siempre en su casa, so Nat King Cole was well-known in, in Havana in the 40s, and he would go down and play at the Tropicana and, and other places. And um, I think before people had suggested to him that he'd do an album in Spanish, but it never happened. And then apparently Ramon convinced him to do it. And, but the problem was that he didn't speak any Spanish. And Ramon helped to coach him, and I believe also Julia, to pronounce, to sing phonetically, because he didn't really even know what he was singing. The album Cole and Espanol was recorded at Pan Art Studio with the house band of the Tropicana Club. The album was a hit in both North and South America. In the United States, it peaked at number 12 on the Billboard album charts. The album's crossover success led Cole to record two more albums in Spanish and convinced other American singers to make Spanish albums as well. If the Cuban Revolution had never occurred, Ramon might have been able to record other famous American crooners. When uh, we left, he was in conversations with Frank Sinatra. In 1958, the same year Colin Espanol was released, Fidel Castro's revolution achieved its final victory. They had succeeded in overthrowing Batista, and Castro had assumed power as head of the new Cuban government. In 1958, no one really knew what Cuba would be like under Castro. Some people praised him for overthrowing a corrupt government and looked forward to Castro's reforms. Others were suspicious that he was cozying up to the Soviet Union and might be worse than the previous regime. Gradually, Castro began to nationalize many privately owned businesses and through his speeches turned the Cuban working class against business owners like the Sabats. Julia began to get the sense that Panart Records was in danger. Panart had always had an office in New York City and frequently, Panart employees would fly back and forth. Now, instead of just bringing a suitcase full of clothing to New York, the employees were asked to smuggle Panart master recordings and album artwork out of Cuba for safekeeping in New York City. You know those belts now that they use for money that people use all over traveling? And they actually invented that. I don't think that existed at that time. At that time, you could travel back and forth. It wasn't as uh, dangerous as it was later, and that's the way he got uh, most of them out. Ramon never objected to smuggling the master tapes out of Cuba as a precaution. But, like many Cubans, he believed everything would be okay in the end. Pan Art was now more successful than ever, and Ramon and Julia had enough money to finally build the house that they had been dreaming about since they left New York together. Ramon approached this project like he approached everything else. He designed it himself and was meticulous with every detail. They had delayed building this house for nearly two decades, and now it was finally time to fulfill their dream. Except that Julia didn't really feel that way. Julia remembers when the time came to pick out furniture for the new house, her heart just wasn't in it. She knew life in Cuba was changing. She simply went through the motions to make her husband happy. But really, her mind was less concerned with furniture than for the safety of her husband and their two daughters, who were still students at the Rustin Academy in Havana. In November of 1960, Julia received a call from the head of her daughter's school. She wrote this in her memoir about that day. 
This isn't Julia's voice, but it is her words. Early in November, Dr. James Baker, director of Reston Academy, asked me to come in to see him. I knew what the bad news was going to be. Rustin was going to close down, and it was time for the girls to leave Cuba. On my way to the school, I must have been very distracted and upset. A car I did not see coming hit my right rear fender and spun the car in someone's front yard. No one was hurt, but so abnormal were the times that the driver and I both got out of our cars, looked at the damage, looked at each other, and without saying a word, got back into our cars and drove off. Reporting the accident at the moment seemed absurd. A car accident seemed so relatively unimportant. Just before Thanksgiving of that year, Julia left Cuba with their two daughters and enrolled them in a boarding school in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Julia moved back to New York City and worked out of the Panard office on Park Avenue. Ramon stayed in Cuba to finish the house. He had built his dream home. And he wanted my mother to send money to finish the house. And my, my mother said, absolutely not. That was a, a big fight. Because what my mother did is she told all her, you know, the record companies or people that owed her money outside of Cuba. She says, look, I'm going to send you uh, threatening letters. Um, you're going to have attorney sending you letter. Do not pay me in Cuba. Julia and Ramon spent the first half of 1961 living in separate countries. Julia refused to send Ramon money in Cuba and begged him to leave. She feared that all Panart's international business deals would make Ramon a prime target for the government, especially after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion that April. But Ramon refused. He couldn't abandon the record label, recording studio, or the new house. He refused to move to the United States, but he would come visit that May. When I came, I was a senior in high school. My sister was a sophomore. And we went to a boarding school in in Philadelphia, so he actually came for my graduation. And just as the plane left, the company was was, um, confiscated. While Ramon was on his flight to go to his daughter's graduation, his brother called Julia from Cuba and told her that armed guards had taken the recording studio and their house. The official order read, Nationalized by compulsory expropriation, and in consequence, full ownership is granted to the Cuban state. Julia told Ramon the news the next day. She remembers Ramon staring at his half-unpacked suitcase in their hotel room and saying, So that's all that's left? The recording studio Ramon built, the equipment he brought from America strapped to the deck of a boat, the master tapes that hadn't yet been smuggled out, and the dream house he had finally built were now all gone. He was only able to build his house, you know, one year before the revolution uh, got into power. He only lived uh, his dream home for one year. After their daughter Julie's graduation, the Sabats made the decision to move to Miami, Florida. They had friends and family there. They moved into a temporary house, and at the time, they believed they would only need to stay in Miami for a short while. They hoped the American government would overthrow the Castro regime. After the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, that hope was dim and faded completely after the Cuban Missile Crisis in October of 1962. The Sabats slowly began to accept that their lives in Cuba were now just a memory and Miami, Florida was their new home. They lived in their temporary house for 20 years. Julia's decision to smuggle the master tapes and the album artwork out of Cuba ended up being a brilliant idea. 
Panart Records did not release many new albums from Miami, but Julia continued to print the Panart catalog and sell the records to the Cuban exile community living in Miami. The money from the album sales was enough to take care of the family. Ramon chose to focus his attention on sailing and purchased a new boat that he named the Julie Do, which is a combination of the names of his two daughters. He never again participated in running Panart Records. My parents had a, a good life, thanks to my mother. They had a comfortable, you know, retirement. But it, to give you an example, uh, there's a lot of horrible stories of, of people that were killed in Cuba, firing squads, people lost at sea, families separated, and so on and so forth. My family didn't go through any of that. My mother brought out all of his, uh, my father's family, all of his brothers and so forth, but it destroyed my father. It, it, he really was never the same person again. You know, it's, you build something up, you work at it, he didn't inherit it, and then suddenly somebody comes and says, just because I want you, out, you know? I don't mean that he was depressed or anything like that, but I could see that it defeated him. It totally defeated him. He was like 58 years old. It was hard for him to get started again. In 1983, 22 years after Julia and Ramon Sabat moved to Miami, they sold the Panart catalog to a Venezuelan record executive. Ramon's health was beginning to decline, and they needed the money to pay for health care costs. Three years later, on March 15, 1986, Ramon passed away. He is buried at Our Lady of Mercy Cemetery in Miami. The family placed a bronze plaque on his grave with the epitaph, A Sea Cantaba Cuba, which translates to, That's How Cuba Sang. El sol se fue de Cuba, llorando de tristeza, se ha ido el manicero. Julia Sabat lived until 2006. Before she passed away, the University of Miami asked Julia to write a memoir about her and Ramon for the University Library's Cuban Heritage Collection. That memoir is where most of the information that I've told you comes from. Until the 1990s, communication with Cuba was almost non-existent. In that decade, the United States president decided to open a cultural exchange with Cuba, which meant Cuban musicians would be able to perform in the United States. Cuban music began to be rediscovered. One act in particular, named the Buena Vista Social Club, was a huge success, first with their album and then with their tour. Their success led to a Buena Vista Social Club documentary that featured scenes of the band recording in a studio in Havana. The address of that studio is San Miguel Cuatrocientos Diez. It was the studio Ramon Sabat built five and a half decades before. Seeing that studio was a surprise to Ramon's daughter, Julie. How long had it been since she had seen the interior? Oh, my God. I don't know. Whenever I left in 1950, and whenever the Buena Vista Social Club came out, which I don't remember the year, I recognized it right away. I recognized it right away. You know, it confirmed... What a great job he did, that that studio was still being used. After nationalizing Pan Art in 1961, the Cuban government founded a centralized, state-sponsored record label called Agrem. The Pan Art studio was rechristened Areito and became the primary studio for recording in Havana. For decades, that studio bore witness to new revolutions in Cuban music and the recording of several generations of artists, such as the revolutionary folk singers Silvio Rodriguez and Pablo Milanes the great dance band Los Van Van, and thousands more. There are over 70,000 recordings in Egram's archives. 
But still, after the success of the Buena Vista Social Club, other foreign producers have been drawn to the magic of the studio built by Ramon Sabat, even though the place has become so antiquated that they have to bring their own recording equipment. Other producers get one glimpse of the studio with its creaky floors, leaks in the roof, out-of-date electronics and walls in need of repair, and decide that they would prefer to record somewhere else. But I wonder if those foreign producers, or even the young musicians who record there now, know that those walls witness Nat King Cole learn to sing in Spanish, or that those floors were blessed with rum by a Santeria priest just before Celia Cruz recorded one of her first records. Do they know the name of the man who shipped the studio's equipment from Miami to Havana, strapped to the open deck of an unsteady boat, and built many of those walls with his own two hands? The same way that some may not be aware of the studio's past, after Ramon and Julia became Cuban exiles, they remained unaware of what happened to the studio. Like I said earlier, for many years, the flow of information between Cuba and the United States was blocked. Julia only learned what happened to her husband's studio in the mid-90s, before the Buena Vista Social Club documentary when my co-producer, Judy Cantor Navas, returned to Miami after a trip to Havana. And it seems unbelievable now, but you have to think of what the communication could be like with Havana up until the 80s. She and Ramon thought that they destroyed the studio, so they had no idea. Even though this place was... (laughs) The walls shaking with, you know, all of the great music of Cuba of the last half century. They thought that nothing had ever happened there again and that they had taken the the building and then they had shut it down. And the first time that she knew that it was still open and still a working studio was when I came back from Havana with photos and I showed them to her. She was happy that they were still using the studio. I mean, she wasn't somebody who, at least to me, she wasn't angry that they were there and they were using the studio. She was happy. She, I think what she said to me was like, well, I'm glad to know, and Ramon will be glad to know that musicians are still making music there. This episode was produced by me, Matthew Billy, and my guest producer, Judy Cantor-Navas. Judy also selected the music for this episode. If you would like to find out more about her work and check out her writing, you can visit judycantor.com. Jason Silverman created the Between the Liner Notes graphics and website. Laura Vander assisted with production and read Julia Sabat's passage about the car accident. Special thanks to Julie Sabat Alvarez for being our guest and talking about her memories of her parents. Also thanks to Julie's son, George Alvarez, for helping coordinate the interview. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or whatever application you use to listen to podcasts. You can also find us at our website, BetweenTheLinerNotes.com, Facebook, and Twitter. Feel free to write to us. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, and please leave us an iTunes rating. They really help a lot. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Between the Liner Notes. <laughs>